Hello, and welcome to Inside Change. I'm your host, David Callahan. So trying to change public policy can be a slow and grinding business. And if you're on the left, you often spend much of your time just playing defense. Republicans have held the White House for 12 of the last 20 years, and they've been even stronger at the state level, wielding complete control over government in nearly two dozen states. These tough realities make the Fairness Project a super interesting organization to take a look at. Until a few months ago, I had never even heard of the Fairness Project, which keeps a pretty low profile. It's focused exclusively on making changes at the state level where it works on passing ballot initiatives, direct democracy. What makes this group stand out is its track record of scoring campaign victories in state after state since 2016. It's helped achieve big increases in the minimum wage, an expansion of Medicaid benefits, and new laws guaranteeing paid leave. The Fairness Project says that it has won 20 out of 21 of its ballot campaigns, working in both blue and red states. Those campaigns have brought health insurance to more than 800,000 people and paid sick leave to 3 million people. That is quite a track record, and all the more so given the bleak political landscape of the past four years. So the obvious question is, how has the Fairness Project been so successful? What's its secret sauce? To get into all this, I'm excited to be talking today to Jonathan Schleifer, who is Executive Director of The Fairness Project. A quick word about me before we begin. I'm the founder and editor of Blue Tent, which features unique in-depth reporting on progressive politics. And I'm also founder of Inside Philanthropy, which covers the world of foundations and major donors. Please visit bluetent.us and insidephilanthropy.com. Even better, I hope you'll subscribe. And with that, let's get started. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, David. So I'm keen to get into the pretty remarkable work that you've been doing with the Fairness Project. But before we go there, I'm really interested to hear about your background. I know that you started off as a public school teacher in New York City and that you became deeply involved in the anti-war movement after 9-11. So I'd be interested to hear about that and, and how that eventually led to the Fairness Project. Yeah. Again, thank you for having me on. Right after college, I, I was a teacher in the South Bronx for five years. And I like to say that sort of, you know, teaching middle school, I think, was one of the best lessons in politics and political communication, because to handle you know, 45 kids who are going through puberty and trying to, to get them to do the one thing you want them to do, which is the least interesting that they have on their plate is very much akin to a lot of what we do in politics and persuasion, trying to get someone's attention, trying to express the value of what we're doing, and really understanding where people are and communicating with them. So, But I was a teacher because I thought it was one of the most impactful things I could do to help confront racial and economic injustice. I really just wanted to get boots on the ground as quickly as possible and see what I can do um, for the community in the Bronx where I was teaching. And uh, on our second year, three or four days into teaching, was um, September 11th. And I had actually gone into my second year teaching, hopeful that I could apply all the lessons of the first year. I mean, very few people are great teachers their first year, and and I was really excited to to have a strong second. And it started, though, with September 11th, and one of my students literally pulled me to the window and showed me that we can see the smoke from the towers. And that sort of expanded my horizons in terms of not just focusing on 
domestic po policy and injustice, but really just putting an, a, a broader eye towards the world, especially as I saw that you know New York City was being used as the drum on which the, 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 the war um, in Afghanistan and then Iraq was really being beaten. And so got involved in the anti-war movement, first trying to just to slow down the march to war in Afghanistan. And, and a lot of great lessons were learned there. I mean, I, I learned how to be an organizer trying to stop the Bush administration and the neocons from advancing an agenda that they had invested you know, decades in and learned how hard it is to do something like that. When you don't have a real level, level you know, it, it was phenomenal, like just seeing the sheer number of people who would march in the streets in New York or march in the streets of Washington to oppose the war. There was so much enthusiasm for peace is what, what I was seeing. And as a relatively young person, I was convinced that we could stop it. And I just remember the pain of sitting in a friend's apartment and she and her, her two little daughters and I were like cutting leaflets to hand out the next day for the next protest. And the president announced that we were going to go to war in, in Iraq. And so, sort of just trying to, to organize the, this an understanding of how we could have had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are so clearly opposed to this position and, and not be able to do anything about it. And I just remember that night, my mentor at the time, whose house I was in, just turned to me and saying, all right, now we go from organizing to stop a war to organizing to end a war, and this is the work. And you know, as I, I think coming out of that anti-war work, I mean, really what I learned was, one is the incredible power of being able to mobilize people together. It is so important for building community and movement and solidarity, for speaking out and articulating a position because you must, right? There cannot be the, the complicity of silence, but also needing to find levers of power, like way, ways in which you can truly shift the thinking of those who frankly couldn't care less about what people on the streets were saying. And the second was that last piece, we go from organizing to stop a war to end a war, which is just the, the, the resilience that is required in sort of this work. And every minor setback is an opportunity to learn, to reorganize and to re-engage and, and to move on. And so I, I really, between teaching in the Bronx and, and that anti-war work, I feel like these pivotal anchoring points in the start of my career. Yeah, so you left teaching and you went into uh, full-time work and advocacy and politics. You had a, a, a number of different jobs. You worked in Congress as a staffer. You led an education advocacy organization. You've been part of a communications firm, part of a, a Senate campaign. So uh, that's a lot of different positions you played. So I'd, I'm keen to hear what sort of vantage points you got on how to wield power, how to get it, and what you learned in, in that journey. Yeah, I, I like to say, I've sat on both sides of the desk in like the congressional lobbying meeting. I've been there as the staffer hearing the pitch from the advocates and the lobbyists. I, I've been the, the lobbyist for teachers and veterans. And I think, I think two things became really clear to me. One is that people on both sides of the desk actually had very little power and agency in that moment. Because the staffer is almost is, is often limited by the their, their boss's priorities or their their boss's uh, funders' priorities, right? The party and then the lobbyist, right? The advocate is limited by the fact that they have to be able to move that staffer to move their boss, and even for meeting with the boss, the boss is still limited by all these other forces that are impacting their decision-making process. But I think the greater lesson that is people playing by a set of rules that they have very little control over that are that were designed to limit progress to maintain and increase the power of those with lots of resources at the expense of everyone else. And, you know, and, and these are conversations that, are, that have been happening over the last, particularly year or so in the presidential campaign, we talk about the power of, of the billionaire class, when we talk about the racial injustice of economic inequality. So th these obviously aren't, aren't novel observations, but it just became very clear 
how few avenues for progress and change there were, whether I was sitting on the side of the, the staffer or on the side of the activist. And actually, one of the, one of the most profound sort of examples of that was, and this is actually one of the, the last sort of activist or advocacy experiences I had when I was working with a veterans organization. I was meeting with congressional staff, and we were advocating for mental health coverage and additional funding for widows and orphans of those who had died in combat. This veterans advocacy was really my, my anti-war work coming full circle. We were sort of making the case for just how critical mental health funding was and just how critical funding for programs for widows and orphans were. And a staffer sitting opposite me said, well, you know, my boss will support all that funding, but we're going to have to cut the new GI Bill to pay for it. And is that okay with you? And I was sitting with veterans. I myself am not a veteran, but I was sitting with veterans, and 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 I asked them, like, are you really asking us to choose between mental health and and widows and orphans and education funding? And he said yes. And I said, like, how can you expect us to make a choice like that? Like these women and men deserve all the above. In fact, your boss is probably going to be at an event this weekend, you know, standing in front of veterans wearing hats and the flag and, and claiming to support veterans. Like, how can you ask to choose? And his response was, well, these are the rules. You got to play by them. And I just, like, in my head, I just said, like, fuck the rules. Like, I'm done. And within a few days, I was actually telling that story to some friends of mine. And I hope I can curse on this podcast. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm from New Jersey. It just comes out. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I was... I'm from the tri-state, too. There you so, go. So, yeah, and I was just telling that story of just, like, the absurd choice that someone would present to veterans to choose between mental health and widows and orphans and their education. Their edu- and, and the new GI Bill has been one of the most effective programs for returning veterans like how, what, what an absurd choice to ask anyone to make and she's like I'm working with this group that's just starting up that's going to go around those moments that are going to go around those false choices and go straight to voters and ask voters what they want and stop asking the politicians what they want and she was talking about the fairness project she was an early consultant on the program the executive director who, who launched it did an incredible job in 2016 and was, and, and was moving on to a different project and they were looking for a new director and that's, that's where I came in but really those false choices that are made by playing the rules that are presented by the ideology and by the partisanship. So in the case of the budget, you know, in, in the case of the veterans story, that was about budgeting rules and not about doing what was right. And these are budgeting rules that always find money for tax cuts to the rich, but never find money for food stamps, right? And the second thing is, besides those false choices, even when we do get to make a decision, even when policy is made, it is so often negotiated to a shadow of itself, right? Like, we, we do not have an ideas problem, right? We have a, an execution problem. We know to an incredible degree, like, what needs to get done to close the racial disparities in, in economic and health, gender inequality. Like, we have a lot of really good ideas that have been tried and tested around the world and even at home, but it is finding the will, the political will among those in power to actually get it done, and that's where and that's where we fall apart. And so the Fairness Project is basically designed to go around that broken political system at the state and, and local level to work with local communities to put an issue in front of voters and to have them weigh in on it. And what we found is that 95% of the time in our first five years, voters have sided with progressive policy in red and purple and blue states. So for people who don't know about the Fairness Project, it's, it's focused on ballot campaigns, direct democracy. Interestingly, you know, direct democracy through ballot initiatives was invented a uh, hundred years ago, I guess, yeah. by progressives who had a lot of the concerns you just articulated that it came at the time that legislatures were dominated by the, the trusts and these oligarchs of the time, the railroads and the, the oil magnates. And that's how ballot initiatives came about. That's right. I live in California. In the recent election, there was no sooner, no less than 12 
statewide ballot initiatives that I had to sort through. I have a degree in political science. I found it very confusing. Special interests spent tens of millions of dollars. I have to say, I'm, I have some ambivalence about these ballot initiatives. I know that that progressives can embrace them and do some good, but kind of justify this on philosophical grounds of, of leaning so heavily on, on this kind of tool, which uh, really cuts both ways. Well, I, I think my first question back would be to ask to justify the the political system as it is that allows for such undue influence of those with wealth and resources and corporations, right? I think the the ballot initiative is a it's a response to a profoundly broken system, one that was founded, uh, to your point, as a response to the undue and excessive influence of the oligarchs and others. And so I, I think we, the, the questions come together, like how do we justify our current system and how do we justify right. the solve, right? And frankly, you know, I think a lot of people say, a lot, a lot of nonprofit workers are like, they say, you know, I cannot wait to, to work myself out of a job, right? When my organization solves this problem, you know, I'll be out of a job and that's great. And frankly, like, that's not the case for the work that we do with the Fairness Project. The thing that's going to, to do away with the need for ballot initiatives is going to be when we correct the, the failures, both, both intentional and not, of our political system, right? So when we're able to have a rep- representative democracy that delivers for workers and their families and not for corporations and the rich, then we won't have to have a, a corrective measure like the ballot initiative. And what we find over and again is that we actually find that progressive policies, ballot initiatives can serve a number of functions in different states. And to address California in particular, California has a $15 minimum wage only because four years ago, four and a half years ago, we came together with groups in California and started collecting signatures for a $15 minimum wage. Months before that, the legislature couldn't pass a, I think it was like a $13.50 initiative. And so as soon as we started collecting signatures and qualified, Right, using, to come back to earlier conversation, using the ballot initiative as a lever of power in a blue state, because even Democrats are influenced by special interests, right, who are whispering in their ear and saying, there's no way we can have a $15 minimum wage in California. We were able to break through that, the blue wall, in, the, in this case in California, and actually get a $15 minimum wage. The governor and the legislature basically called and said, if you pull your signatures, if you pull the initiative, we will pass $15 on our own. The same story was true in Washington, D.C. The same thing is true in Massachusetts. So the ballot initiative can be an incredibly powerful tool for creating upward pressure on Democrats and blue legislatures to do the right thing. And then it also has the power in purple and and red states where there's no chance the legislature is going to pass progressive policy to go around the legislature, to go around the governors and to pass progressive policy. And that's what we've seen as, you know, in the last few years as we've passed Medicaid expansion in Utah, Idaho, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Missouri, like there, there was no path except for the ballot initiative. And so, I right. mean, yeah, so I, I would love to get to the place where our work is totally unnecessary, but that is the work of fixing our democracy and, and, and having elected officials who serve their constituents and focus on wages and wealth and the things that actually will improve their lives. Then we can, we can put this tool away. Right, right. Well, um, I want to get to some of those battles you've been involved in, but just say a little bit about how the Fairness Project was created. It is just a few years old, it's a relatively new organization. Who founded it? How is it funded? Yeah. So the Fairness Project was founded out of a California healthcare union, the SCIU, UHW, the, the local in California. The president of the union was observing that labor nationally was being stressed and that there were also a lot of workers that were not represented by unions and there was no way for them to affect change, to, to change their own lives. 
And he argued that the way, and he wrote this in a letter that got leaked and basically saying that the, the way for labor to become relevant and the way to, to support workers who couldn't organize because they were in so-called right-to-work states and because they didn't have legislatures and governors who were actually looking out for workers was to embrace the ballot as a strategy. And he offered to put some seed money from the California Union. His rank and file voted to contribute money to launch an organization. And the Fairness Project was formed out of that idea. And we are an independent 501c4 organization that is still funded by SEIU UHW in California. But we also now have institutional funders, various stakeholders from the different industries that we have that we've worked in, and as well as you know over 6,000 online donors. But we're you know, always looking for more. So let's talk about the Medicaid expansion battles, sure. which to me have been so impressive, your work there. Of course, under Obamacare, the Medicaid expansion was mandated to expand uh, to all 50 states. That was struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. It became voluntary. Many Republican states chose not to expand. At one point, over 20 ha- had not expanded Medicaid, leaving millions of people un- uninsured and causing thousands of unnecessary yeah. deaths. Now that number of states that have not expanded Medicare is down to, I guess, 12. Mm-hmm. And you all have played a role in that. So that strikes me as an amazing success. I think you say in your materials that you've helped extend health care to 800,000 uh, people at least. And Maine, I believe, was one of your first big battles in 2017 mm-hmm. to expand Medicaid there. So tell me, how does this work unfold it? Yeah, on the most fundamental level, you know, there wouldn't have been these Medicaid ballots without the Fairness Project, and that's not hyperbole. The anchor for this was actually was the main ballot initiative, which you mentioned. Heading into the 2016 election, we had been working with some groups in Maine, the Maine People's Alliance being one of them, an incredible grassroots organization. We had been working together on minimum wage, which we ultimately won a minimum wage increase in 2016. And even as we were preparing for the 2016 election, waiting for Mainers to vote on minimum wage, we asked, you know, we were talking about what could we do next? Like, we love working together, and we, we saw it as a great opportunity for advancing progressive change. They had a particularly conservative or progressive, close-minded governor in, in Maine. And so we decided that, you know, even if Secretary Clinton had won the White House in 2016, they would not have Medicaid expansion. Their legislature, I should say, passed it five times. The governor, had, Governor LePage, had vetoed it five times. And so, assuming that Secretary Clinton would become President Clinton, Mainers would still not have health care because they still had to, needed the governor to sign off on it. And so we thought the next best thing after minimum wage would be a Medicaid expansion in Maine. And of course, everyone knows how it went. And Secretary Clinton did not win the White House. And we had already been starting collecting signatures for Medicaid expansion. And in talking with the folks at Maine People's Alliance, it became clear that we had the absolute responsibility to continue working on it, even under a Trump presidency and the threat to the ACA. Um, And on top of that, we were talking internally about what our role in a Trump presidency could be. We, We couldn't ask working families to wait for higher wages, for leave, and for health care. For, for Trump to leave the White House, right? Whether that was through some dramatic impeachment or just waiting the four years for him to leave. And, and so much of our work is based in this notion that we just can't ask working people to wait for our democracy to be fixed. And so we sort of identified healthcare as being possibly one of the greatest threats to or the lack of healthcare and, and, and the assault on the ACA and Obamacare to be one of the greatest threats coming out of the Trump presidency. Right. If you remember at the time, it was Trump, it was McConnell, it was Ryan. Right. Their top priority. Yeah, number one priority. You know, they had tried how many times under Obama to repeal the ACA, which he he could have just vetoed if they had gotten the votes. 
So, you know, it, we decided that we had to find a role in, in protecting the ACA. And our theory of change is one based on going on offense. It's one based on getting voters to say yes. And so we decided that we were going to aggressively expand Medicaid to provide health care to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. And with, with sort of two strategic outcomes, like one being providing health care to people. And there's, there's potentially nothing more important than that. But secondly, to change the political calculus around the ACA. As a result of our work the last four years, now having one Medicaid expansion in six states, about 60%, almost 60% of GOP members of the House now are representing Medicaid expansion states. And we're hoping, we're, we're moving the, the, the political dial towards leaving the ACA alone and leaving Medicaid expansion alone because it has proven um, over and over again to be one of the best things we can do for closing racial and economic health disparities. So it's one thing to win in Maine. Uh, Medicaid expansion, but yeah. you've also won in some uh, much tougher places, uh, some some pretty deep red states. And, you know, my understanding is that ACA, at least according to the polling, was quite unpopular in uh, these Republican Trump states. And so I, I was kind of curious, I mean, how do you move the needle on an issue that's, that Republicans have spent literally almost a decade demonizing? Yeah. It's funny because when we do our sort of like our, our political analysis, our risk analysis, like one of the questions we ask is who is the opposition and, and what do they can do against our ballot? And part of that, our calculation is not just that the opposition that's going to show up in the moment against us in the campaign, but the, the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars that they've invested in trying to demonize this program. So you are 100% right. And, you know, and what seems like a no-brainer like just wasn't always the case. There, there were lots of people who thought we were nuts to advance these fights in red states. A lot of national progressive organizations told us we should leave it alone. It was a suicide mission and that we were going we're gonna to set the policy back if we, if we advanced it on a ballot initiative. And then thankfully we didn't take their advice. But we're able to find allies in Utah, Nebraska, Idaho, Oklahoma, Missouri who are willing to move ahead with us on this. And I think one of the things we've learned, and this is true for all the policies we work on, is that while the right has effectively demonized the program, they haven't demonized health care. And if we are able to tear the, the partisan labels off of it, off of the policy, and just ask voters fundamental questions, not do you support Hillary Clinton or, or Donald Trump or Joe Biden, or do you, are, are you a Democrat or Republican, but funda more fundamental questions like, do you want health care for the person who's checking you out at the grocery store? Do you want health care for your niece who can't afford it right now? who is working two jobs and still can't get health care. On some of the other issues we work on, right? Do you want higher wages? Do you want paid leave so you can take time off when you get sick? That fundamentally, when we ask people in red, purple, and, and, and blue states, if they want these fundamental things, these progressive values, they consistently say yes. And as long as we can keep the partisan labels off it and not make it about ideology and tribe, people are just much more generous than our politicians want us and frankly need us to, to be. Right. I mean, what's not to like about expansion of Medicaid? And of course, you have made your allies in the hospitals and, and other you know, health care providers throughout these different states who want it. But what about the opposition? I mean, as we know, you know, the Koch network and uh, various groups have spent tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars fighting to destroy the Affordable Care Act, fighting to stop Medicaid expansion in states. I mean, that's a long-standing, well-financed battle. So how did you manage to prevail? Yeah, well, a couple of things. One is, in our early work in any of these campaigns, we, we invest in building as broad and inclusive a coalition as possible. And truly strange bedfellow coalitions. The, the most extreme being in Idaho, 
which is a state Donald Trump won by double digits. We had the, a left-wing progressive organization that's trying to flip the Idaho legislature and truly wanted this to be the tip of the spear for that work, right? Clearly not aligned with conservative values, but also the equivalent of the chamber. And the sheriffs showed up. I mean, I, I think the sheriffs and I probably agree on nothing but Medicaid expansion. You know, conservative politicians and progressive politicians, Democrats, Republicans, representatives from the entire healthcare industry, all, all lining up together to say that we are, we're, we're not debating the bigger question of what should happen in healthcare in the long run, but the most fundamental question of do we want to provide healthcare to those who are caught in the coverage gap. And saying that across the board really bolstered our campaign and actually created a permission structure for a lot of conservatives who have been opposed to Medicaid expansion before to come in and say yes, that they're open to it. They're going to put aside the fact that they've been opposing Medicaid expansion, either you know dinner table or from the bully pulpit, a press conference, and actually come together and say yes to Medicaid expansion. So much so that you know Butch Otter, who was the sitting governor at the time in Idaho, who, who had spent the last six years of his career opposing Medicaid expansion as governor and before that, he and his wife endorsed the initiative, shot an ad for us, did a press conference for the campaign, and came out for it. And I think so much of, of this is about giving a permission structure to those who have formally opposed the policy for whatever reason, whether it's ideological or political, and, and saying that, like, let's have an honest accounting of what you actually want for your state and for the country. And so yeah. that's how we managed to get around all that. Well, I, I long found it so astonishing that the opposition to the Affordable Care Act was so intense in these heartland states, because if you look at this law, I mean, it is basically redistributing money from millionaires in Manhattan and Malibu yeah. through taxes on devices and wealthy people, Medicare surcharge. You know, it's literally taking money from the coast and shipping it to the interior. And yet these politicians have fought, you know, for so hard. So it's actually not surprising that if you could find a way to kind of change the messaging, yeah. create some new coalitions, that in the end, the kind of fundamental law of politics of who gets what, you know, like what's not to like having a bunch of money sent to your state from people outside the state would kick in. Yeah, especially on an issue that as personal as healthcare, right? I mean, this is literally the life and death situations for so many. I mean, rural hospitals in, in Oklahoma, Missouri, literally a you know, closing down and forcing people, or I would say creating healthcare deserts. Like even before COVID, this was becoming a crisis in so many of these communities. And we just had to find a way to get around the politics and around the ideology. And, and to the opposition question again, they know that they are going to lose with voters. And so we actually find their greatest investment of resources is, is, in, is in using their lawyers and their lobbyists to either keep us off the ballot. So we see this over and again, suing to, to, to challenge signatures, to challenge the language, anything that they can do to keep us from putting this question in front of voters. Then they can test us with voters, of course. They are ads against us. And in Missouri, they tried a very hyper-racialized, racist ad um, that thankfully failed, that the dog whistle failed there. But then they also come out at us afterwards with their lobbyists and trying to overturn our work in the legislature. I mean, I think one of the biggest surprises in, in 2018 for us, and we've evolved our work in order to accommodate this, was that even after voters in Nebraska and Utah and Idaho so clearly voted to support Medicaid expansion, the ideologues and the partisans in the legislature fought to repeal and replace it in Utah, delayed it successfully, tragically for two years in Nebraska, and tried to mess with it in Idaho. And so they've always had their power with the lawyers and the lobbyists. We have our power with voters. And so long as we can get to voters, I think we can continue to win. Well, Speaking of what's popular among voters, let's shift over to the minimum wage. I mean, that's an issue where large majorities of the public have long supported raising the minimum wage. 
Bizarrely, the federal minimum wage has been stuck at seven twenty-five an hour since two thousand nine. You all have been part of a, of a larger movement to break through that with minimum wage hikes at both the municipal level and the state level. Fairness Project has been involved in a half a dozen ballot campaigns, I yeah. think, that to uh, raise the minimum wage, including some pretty major victories. So tell me about that. The, the minimum wage work is some of our, our proudest, and we, we've been able to change 10 million lives. We actually have a counter on our website where we calculate the number of dollars put in low-wage workers' pockets as the result of minimum wage increases. Just to emphasize that this is it's such a powerful and transformative policy change because it is literally felt paycheck after paycheck after paycheck. And deep red states are passing minimum wage increases with more than 60% of the vote. And you don't win 60% of the vote on many issues in this country anymore. And we frankly see like raising the wage as a way to bring the country together. And as we look to unify this country, it's a great place to start. And we've been able to do that in states like, like Arizona and Arkansas that, that tend to trend pretty dark red pretty deep red, I should say. And just now, this last cycle, we saw a campaign in Florida was able to raise the minimum wage to $15. Um, yeah. There wasn't a lot of- Which passed by 60%, you yeah, know, yeah. In, a, in, a, in a state that Trump won by a, a healthy margin. So that, to me, really speaks to the kind of way in which that issue sort of operates out of the polarized box, if you can right. get it in front of voters. That's right. And we, we even saw in 16 where minimum wage in Arizona outperformed Donald Trump. It outperformed Secretary Clinton in Colorado and, and, and Washington State and, and Maine. Like you, you actually see these policies are so much more popular than even the winning candidate, just how popular these issues are. And I think that's a function of just how important they are in people's lives. Paid family leave, it's time off, another area that you've worked on. Tell me about that. Yeah, so we've worked on, on paid leave issue campaigns in a number of states, uh, This Latin, including pairing paid leave with minimum wage in a few states in 2016. And, and those were, were just even more popular when you sort of create a page of, of policies that in, in many places would, would be part of a, a union package. But they are even more popular. But in 2020, there was the country's first paid Family Medical Leave Act ballot initiative in, in Colorado. 2.6 million people will benefit uh, from this paid family medical leave. We're excited to think about how we can do for paid family and medical leave, what we were able to do for Medicaid expansion with the state. I mean, I, ideally, we, we, we come out with Washington, D.C. that is prioritizing workers with Biden in the White House and hopefully the, the right Senate and the House. But ab absent that happening, you know, the next four years, are the, the responsibility of passing progressive policy becomes even greater as we hopefully come to the tail end of COVID and ensuring that the, the folks who were formerly invisible workers, who then became essential workers, are provided the, the protections and the, and, and the benefits and the wages and the health care that they deserve. Say something about your next battles. I know Medicaid expansion has not yet happened in Texas, which has more uninsured people than any other state in the country. Is that on your hit list? Oh, I wish. Or does it not have that? Not yeah. have a, it doesn't have a ballot initiative. It, it doesn't. Texas <laughs> has local initiatives. And, and we've actually, we did a, we worked with some local groups in Texas, like the Texas Texas Organizing Project and Workers' Defense in Texas to stand up a paid leave initiative in uh, San Antonio um, and Dallas. And, and we were able to pressure the, the city councils to actually pass those as policy. But they don't have a statewide initiative, and it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's tragic that there is no way for voters in Texas to weigh in on Medicaid expansion and, and just show their legislature and their governor how out of touch they are with what the people want. Because I'm confident if we could have a ballot process in Texas, we, we would win that one. There are four states that have uh, a ballot process and have not expanded Medicaid yet. They are Wyoming, Mississippi, South Dakota, and Florida. 
And we've been working with an incredible coalition in Florida for, for almost four years now. Florida just being a monster of a state when it comes to running and winning ballot initiatives as well as any sort of politics there. And I think the, the need in Florida is for us to be able to raise the resources to be able to, to advance a campaign there. So if there are any billionaires listening to this, like we're come to Florida, you know, because expanding Medicaid in Florida would provide health care to 900,000 people. And it'll be a particularly interesting race if, if we can get Medicaid expansion on the ballot in Florida because it'll be Ron DeSantis, who has been an opponent of Medicaid expansion and also has done a horrible job managing COVID. He, he will share the ballot with Medicaid expansion. So if, that, if that's a pitch to support the work of the, the Florida campaign, what else you need? And then there's also Mississippi and South Dakota and Wyoming. And we've been working with coalitions in both Mississippi and South Dakota and are hoping to make our way to, to Wyoming to a degree to build the coalitions that we described. And really, you know, the Fairness Project has, we've won 95% of our campaigns, which is, we've, we've won 20 out of 21 campaigns. And part of that is because, and I was once accused of cheating, like we only advance campaigns that we you know we can win. We like to say rule number one is win and rule number two is don't lose. And, and that's because when it comes to putting a question in front of voters, if you lose, you provide the opposition with a talking point that'll just set back legislative advocacy, you know, years, if not decades. And so we want to make sure that if we're taking our, our donors' dollars, uh, the, the healthcare workers in California support us, that their money is being invested in, in changing lives and winning. And so I think what we're doing now in, in Florida, Mississippi, and, and, and South Dakota is building the coalition, checking all the boxes, making sure we got the policy right and the ballot language right so we can advance a, a winning campaign that'll have the, an, an immediate effect and be, will be able to be smoothly implemented once we've won. Yeah, well, very smart, and the track record is impressive. Uh, again, living in California, where we just saw high-profile progressive ballot initiatives fail, millions of dollars spent, major setback. To you know, look at your track record, it's pretty remarkable. What are the transferable lessons of your work to other people out there who aren't in this area where you can go straight to ballot initiatives, very unusual mechanism that other advocates don't have access to in many cases? What would you take from your work that you would want to say to other advocates? Yeah, I, I think one is you know, there's only 24 states that have a ballot process, so tragically the other 26 don't have this lever of power to come back to our, our even our earlier conversation about what, what is needed to change. But I think a, a few lessons we've learned that I think are, are particularly important. One is, is just the need to build a broad coalition as possible around an issue. In, in order to push back against, I think, one of the rules of McConnell politics, which is like to pit people against each other, right? I mean, the reason why we build strong, diverse coalitions that includes folks from the hospital association and, and far-left activist groups is because that inoculates us from attacks. And when you can hold your coalition together, you're able to demonstrate broad support for an issue and, and defend against attacks. Second is, I think, just emphasizing just the, the importance of these, these, these sort of really fundamental issues, right? And then the third, so that's wages and healthcare and leave, right? It's the issues that have been raised up during COVID that are where we're living in the intersection of a, of a healthcare and economic crisis. These are the issues to, to focus on and to lift up because the impacts are felt across communities. I think that's critical. And then the final thing is I think just yeah, that Americans on these issues are much more generous than our politics and Twitter would suggest. And as much as possible, trying to get out of the political corners and trying to move away from the ideological debates and have more fundamental questions about, you know, why, what is this all about? I mean, I, I got into, I got into teaching because I wanted to change lives. I got into politics because I wanted to change lives. And I believe we can move towards a politics that's not about power, but is about impact, right? A politics that's about change and sort of reminding legislators and, and voting for people 
with impact lens and not with a power lens. I understand that, that that power and impact are closely related. I'm not naive to that fact. But I think we can sometimes lose sight of, of, of what's really important and sort of asking those fundamental questions is how do we impact as many people as possible, especially those who have been deprioritized and devalued and forgotten. And how do we push back against the extreme power of, of corporations and the wealthy? And that's by building that broad coalition, by moving past the partisan politics, because they ultimately benefit from the divisiveness, right? And it's to their interest to, to have us at each other's necks to slow down progress. And so I think we can move past that. We can move all past that by coming together, unifying around these fundamental issues. Jonathan, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me.